The views expressed in this program are those of the participants. America for Americans. America for Americans. Vote Schick for president. America for Americans. Vote Schick for president. We're not from this district. That's okay. I can give you your purity test and register you right here. Just take a sec. Thank you. Come here, Governor Schick, for yourself. There's a big rally tomorrow at City Square. America for Americans. Welcome, everyone. It is Thursday, August 9th, 2018. I'm Bob Metz. I'm Robert Vaughn. And this is Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. Join us for an hour of discussion that's not right wing, it's just right. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be and welcome to our show today, where we are once again joined by Salim Mansour, Western University's Associate Professor of Political Science. Welcome, Salim. Thank you. Thank you for having me. Yeah, it's been a while, and we're going to discuss NAFTA, the North American Free Trade Agreement, right after we remind our listeners that they can write us at feedback at justrightmedia.org, subscribe to Just Right on iTunes and SoundCloud, hear us on WBCQ and on Channel 292 Shortwave, Visit us at www.justrightmedia.org, and there you can access all of Just Right's social media links and all of our archived broadcasts. Well, Salim, it looks like a week ago Canada has been cut out of the discussions going on, and the U.S. has gone ahead and started making deals with Mexico on its own. Are they going to do the same with Canada, or is Canada out in the sidelines and we're going to get in trouble? Well, it, 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 it should be a matter of a Canadian media headline. How is it that uh, Canada was not on the table last week when uh, the trade negotiators of the Trump administration and the Mexican trade negotiators got together to talk bilaterally on NAFTA and, and trade issues? Well, I, I am looking at the headline right there, Canada shunned as trade, trade talks sour. Yeah, that, that was the, that's, that's the one headline on National Post, but mm-hmm. it's not been very widely circulated. But it should, be, it should be the key issue, not only of our summer, but of, of going forward into the 2019 election. Where does Canada stand, that is the government of Canada stand, on what has been happening over the past one year on the question of trade renegotiation? We seem to be lost, uh, Bob. We are not there. And why is that? Yeah, what part of that is due to the personality differences here between a, a Christia Freeland speaking on behalf of Canada and her counterparts in the States? I mean, that's a very personal issue as well because she comes across as, I'm uh, sorry to say, quite a nutcase. <laughs> <laughs> you, you're possibly being very kind. Oh, oh really? <laughs> um, but again, it raised the question to what extent uh, Christian Freeland is not at the end of a rope being held by uh, her boss. An even greater nutcase, Justin Trudeau. Uh, uh, that, that's right. I call him the clueless Justin. Apt. <laughs> um, and, and so, yes, I mean, um, it, it begs the question that, that puzzles I sub- all three of us around this table and people who are looking at this matter. 
I believe that what happened at the G7 in June at Charlevoix, Quebec, it was Canada's turn to host G7. What happened at G7 uh, was, in a sense, a breaking point of the relationship between Trump and Justin, uh, between Canada and the United States. And to recall, G7 was indeed a summit where the trade issue was number one. President Trump, at that time, candidate Trump through the 2016 primary, had made it very clear that of the three or four, or maybe two or three, top priority issue of his presidency, if he becomes the president, would be the trade issue. Would be the immigration issue, build the wall, and the trade issue. That is, renegotiate trade primarily with China. I mean, that was the that was the burning issue in, in American politics, the trade deficit that America had been taking in, in the China-U.S. trade. And then that repeated with the uh, U.S.-European trade and the U.S.-NAFTA trade, that is Canada-Mexico trade. So this was known. And he put this as a priority. And so at the G7, he came forward with the proposal that, you know, uh, we have to look at these issues very carefully. And America is not going to anymore go along with all the past agreements. America wants, that Trump wants, free trade in the sense that it must be free. It must be free, free without tariff free without subsidies. And barriers, yes. And transparent. And he made that very clear at the G7. In his half-hour press conference following the G7, he made that absolutely crystal clear that he is in total favor of utter free trade. They were very clear on their stand on free trade, and then all we got out of the media after that was that Trump's opposed to free trade. Uh, Yes, and and (laughs) what was it that Trump had not raised the issue... In, in the manner that he has subsequently come to raise it, that is the question of Canada's supply management, yes. especially in the dairy and agricultural industry. And Trump was basically focused upon and is focused upon uh, when it comes to Canada and Mexico that uh, others are using the access of Canada to the U.S. market to dump their own products primarily the Chinese. Chinese steel, for example, yes. Yes, steel and aluminium, you know. So and using using Canada as a middleman kind of thing? Yeah, or middleman or, or access. That's right. We, we are the broker. They, they bring the stuff in here and they put it through because we, we have a, you know, free trade with the United States. United States is the biggest market. And that's what he wants to close down and shut down. So he hadn't raised the issues that is Canada's Achilles heel, supply management. So what happens is Trump departs uh, the G7 after talking about free trade in that theoretical framework. Gets on a plane to go meet with Kim Jong-un and save the world. For, for <laughs> and what does Justin Trudeau do? And what does Justin Trudeau do? He gets on the, his high horse. Trump is on the plane flying to Singapore. And Justin Trudeau talks about that Canada may be a polite country, a nice country, but Canada is not about to be bullied on the issue of what are Canadian interests. And Canada is not a security threat to the United States. That is on the issue of aluminium and steel uh, and Chinese. 
Well, that was a clear signal. It was like poking the eyes of, of, of the bear in the Canadian beaver standing up and poking the uh, proverbial American elephant. But how, uh, how, how does a guy like that. Trudeau get away with, with saying he wants trade with Trump while at the same time refusing to do anything about the whole supply management situation and, and, the, and the hypocrisy that it's Canada that has as many barriers and trade trade things in the way as, as anything that they're complaining about. So where where do they get come off even talking like that? Well, it comes off talking like that to uh, uh, examine what is the strategy or tactics, if any, that Justin Trudeau and his crew in Ottawa has, not about free trade or NAFTA, but about the coming election. Exactly. He calls Trump a bully to position himself against a behemoth, the United States in the South, which Canada has always, every political government, uh, every political stripe in Canada has always juxtaposed the little Canadian against the big American as the bad guy to try to gain support from the voters. And that's exactly what Trustin Trudeau is doing. That's right. And I think this is the stage management that is going on with, with the Canadian media fully in support of the liberal NDP position on this. And and we need to talk a little bit here, remind our listeners, our audience about the historical background. But going forward, this is the st- stage being set for Justin with a nice set of hair and false eyebrows who can cutely dress as whatever he wants to dress. That's what he's a failed thespian actor, a drama teacher. But he is going to be David against that mean, orange-haired plutocrat in the White House, the Goliath. And that's the state that is being said, that, you know, there you have the bully in Washington, bullying little Canada, you know, with threats that Canada is a national security threat to the United States. And he's going to be the Captain Canada, much like, uh, what's his name, uh, Tobin? Yeah. uh, Over the fisheries? That's right. The fisheries minister against the European quotas, you know, Captain Canada came to the rescue. That's right. The another liberal who ran in that campaign. You know, this whole claim of bullying, it doesn't even fit into any kind of even an analogy to me. I can't see it. I see the trade issue as two individual, even if they were individuals or countries, who are deciding whether they will do quote unquote business with each with one another. And if one says I don't want to do business with you, but the other one, that's not bullying. No. That's that's, that's a negotiation. That's a negotiation that's and making a choice. It's not like the US is coming in here with the with the military and pointing guns at us and saying we gotta do this. No, they're telling us what their conditions are to do business with them. And and that's their right. It's like it's our right to. And if we are if anybody's the bullies, isn't it us? Yes, yes, but you it's see, not a matter of size. It, it, <laughs> size it, it, doesn't matter. It, you know? it, it doesn't hold uh, uh, water for a moment when it comes to serious discussion and serious thinking about these issues. But this is where comes the question of public perception, politics, you know, propaganda. Uh, what we have today, ironically, I mean, everything is parcel through the media. Media, I mean, it was Marshall McLuhan, uh, what is it, medium is the message, yeah. and something of that nature. So here we have, you know, at the beginning of the 21st century, or, or not quite at the beginning, we're in the second decade of the 21st century, what we have is we have imported from Europe Goebbels and Pravda to be our media. 
You know, the media has become just a propaganda arm in the United States the, of the Democratic Party, and in, in, in Canada, the media is a propaganda arm of the Liberal and the NDP. We saw that recently in the Ontario election. So the facts of the matter is that the NAFTA trade has been jeopardized by the Liberals for their political purpose. If you put it in context and understand what it is, is United States is dealing with China and the European. As President Trump has been reminding the American public that America has been running nearly half a trillion dollar bus budget deficit on trade with China every year, you know, and that this cannot carry on, and he's going to stop it. So that's the target, to turn around the relationship with the second largest economy in the world, which is China. The first largest economy is the United States. Where is Canada? Canada's economy is smaller than Texas, you know. So we are the beneficiaries of the free trade agreement that was signed in 1988, 30 years ago, by Brian Mulroney and Reagan government, which was opposed by the Liberal Party and the NDP. The Liberals led by John Turner and the NDP led by Ed Broadbent. They opposed it. So the 1988 election turned out to be a referendum where the Liberals and the NDP lost that argument and Mulroney came back with a majority and he ratified that deal. 30 years later, the irony is so thick Robert and Bob, we have a liberal government, a majority government in Ottawa that is out to jeopardize, undermine the fundamental bread and butter issue of Canada that for 30 years has been of such tremendous boon to all Canadians from coast to coast. I mean, think about it. Right now, we could and should be talking about how Trudeau has mismanaged the G7 meeting and any and all trade negotiations with the Americans in such a manner that it is now threatening to spiral the Canadian economy into the toilet. Instead, all anybody's talking about is the rift in the Conservative Party. Well done, Andrew Scheer. Well done. I hope the Liberals send you a thank you card for changing the channel so effectively for Justin Trudeau and his ridiculous eyebrows. You guys know, I'm from a family farm. I make no secret about that. And I remember when the Conservative Party of Canada fought against the Soviet-style Canadian wheat board. I remember seeing farmers torn apart from their families in handcuffs, just fighting for marketing freedom. Farmers were sent to jail just because they wanted the right to make decisions for themselves about the products they produce without government or cartel intervention. And at the time, the Conservative Party of Canada stood behind those farmers because it's the right thing to do. It's a conservative principle to believe in the ability to choose your own destiny and take responsibility for your own actions. But did you know that Conservative Party Policy 122 is to officially support supply management? It's right here, ironically right below that official Conservative Party policy to support autonomy and freedom for other farmers. I bet most party members and people who even voted for Andrew Scheer in the leadership race don't know that policy exists.
Bernier's book excerpt was published weeks ago, and his views on supply management have been well known for years. But now, because President Trump is threatening a trade war with Canada because of Canada's supply management system, Bernier is out. Everyone in all parties are rallying around Trudeau in some misplaced act of economic nationalism, despite Trudeau's bumbling, virtue signaling, and anti-Americanism just for the sake of it being the reason we landed in this mess in the first place. In the last week, being pro-Canada has morphed into being anti-Trump and pro-expensive cheese for some reason. We're in another dimension now. How soon we forget the condition that Canada was in prior to the free trade agreement 30 years ago. I was politically active at that time, and I actually get, remember getting a call from the CBC <laughs> asking for our point of view for the Freedom Party of Ontario on what's going to happen to all the people, you know, all the jobs are going to be lost, you know. And I remember Brian Mulroney standing up on stage with Ronald Reagan singing When Irish Eyes Are Smiling and doing a pretty good, good job of it, too. Juxtapose that bit of history with today, when you have Justin Trudeau, who was only 16 years old, I, I think, when the free trade agreement was, was signed. He's lived his life with Canada having a free trade agreement, such as it is, with the United States and Mexico, when he called Trump a bully. That is a characteristic of a Marxist. It's a characteristic of an entitled brat to think that he's entitled to something. And just because the person you're negotiating with across the table says, well, here are my terms. I'm afraid we can't deal if you won't do this, which is basically a negotiating thing. Right. It's a matter of fact discussion. And for a, ch a child would look at that as being bullying. I don't want you to do that. I want you to do this. And because you won't do that, you're a bully. That's childish. That's Marxist. That's entitlement. That's anti-capitalist. So the, the history has to be refreshed in the minds of the Canadian public to understand what we came from as a protectionist nation to what we've become under free trade, which well, is far superior. I think that's part of the irony that Salim was talking about. I recall very clearly at that time how the Liberals and NDP were adamantly against any kind of increased trade with the states. You know, they just saw it as a huge threat to their protectionism, right? Now they see any kind of cutback with that trade as being a worse threat than the one that they feared the first time, which is the opposite. <laughs> it's just so stupid. It's right? irony, isn't it? Yeah. Now, is it possible, and I know that some of these conditions were attached to Canada's negotiation with the states and NAFTA, same thing as what happened at the Paris Climate Accords and why they walked out. Now, we had Stephen Hayward in the June 5th Wall Street Journal talking about why climate change is over. And he referred to something that I saw in the NAFTA situation as well. He says, a good indicator of why this is, issue is over can be found in the early text of the Paris Agreement. And this sounded very familiar to me in terms of what Trudeau was taking with the NAFTA. Quote, the non-binding pact declares that climate action must include concern for gender equality, empowerment of women, intergenerational equity, as well as the importance of the concept of climate justice. Climate change cannot be fully addressed without also grappling with the misogyny and social injustice that have perpetuated the problem for decades. Now, that, that was all tied up into their negotiations with NAFTA as well, and the U.S. just looked at that and said, are you kidding me? And so did all the other countries in the world.
Are, are, are we actually going into trade with other countries with, with conditions like well, this? It is, it, is, it is not simply the question of trade or climate or any other issue for the people on the left and the liberals. It is any negotiation on the international arena with another party is a moment to leverage that discussion to meet their own agenda. And in this case, the agenda is identity politics, it is about gender issue, it is about LGBTQ, diversity, and so on. And to put those things on the table with the Trump administration was a clear indicator that the Trump administration people were not going to take Canadians seriously and talk with them seriously, which is what resulted last week when the Canadians were not, you know, were deliberately uninvited into this bilateral negotiation. By the way, the Mexicans just had an election and they elected a socialist as the president who is now completely open to negotiate with Trump the trade deal because he knows that what needs to be fixed in the, in the, in the Mexican case is the Mexican economy. And the trade deal is a way to fix the Mexican economy. And Trump knows that a good Mexican economy will lower the illegal immigration into sure. the United States, which is connected with his issue of immigration and border wall. But if I may just pivot back to what Robert pointed out about history, you know, Mulroney and Trump, uh, Reagan's mm-hmm. bond that took place, you know, and the singing of the Irish eyes, I remember it as distinctly as you do, um, Robert, uh, was a clear indicator. It was a symbol of that coming together. Both were, by the way, Irish background, you know, Mulroney is Irish, Ronald Reagan was Irish, and there was a lot of that Bonhami in that relationship, you know. But the point that I want to stress here is the most interesting thing that has been forgotten. Brian Mulroney was being the Wilfred Laurier of Canadian politics in 1988. It was Wilfred Laurier's position, going way back before World War I, that the 20th century will not only be Canada's century, and there's a big question mark, what has happened to that, but that he argued for a free trade with the United States that Canada and the United States are natural trading partners, given our geography, given our historical connections, so on and so forth. The people who opposed Laurier at that time were the conservative because they were loyal to the Dominion, to the British Empire, and the trade that was, you know, directed through the British Empire and through Britain. That was what they were trying to conserve at the time. Correct. That was the flag, that was the empire, that was the crown, that was the king. So those... Things have completely changed by the time the 1988 agreement comes around. We are in a different world. 30 years later, we are again in a much different world. And the Liberal Party has trashed the heritage of Wilfred Laurier and hangs on to the heritage of now Pierre Elliott Trudeau and company. We need to have that discussion where we are going as a country. And and Justin Trudeau is neither interested in economics nor in history nor just about anything except having a good bunch of hair and a nice eyebrow and and be elected and play the role of a prime minister uh, and held to the status of the Canadian economy. And here it is, the point that the Canadian public has not been educated in, you know, for the Canada-U.S. trade, which is approximately $2 billion or $1.5 to $2 billion daily traffic, so it amounts to somewhere around about over half half a trillion dollar trade annually uh, two ways. But the interesting thing is that 
the Canadian portion of that trade is between 20 and 25 percent of Canadian GDP. That means we are far more dependent on that trade. Our United States market is about 80 percent of our market. Flip it over. Uh, for the United States, the NAFTA trade with Canada is a fraction of 1%. For the United States, it doesn't matter. For the United States, the trade is with China, with Europe. That is what Trump's focus is on. I thought we were uh, the United States' greatest trading partner. It is, it is at the talking point we are, if you look at the numbers, but then when you put the GDP together, it is not much. You know, As I said, it is a fraction of 1%. For the, for the Chinese, the American trade is extremely important. For the American, is a trade deficit that they're running against China that is important. I would love to see Christia Freeland or Justin Trudeau talk about gender equality and identity politics with, with the China. China, because quite frankly, when it comes to the they economy, are. when it comes to the economy, what does that have to do with the price of tea in China? Right. They, <laughs> are, they right. already attempted that and they were already laughed out <laughs> they, and by the Chinese. They really, that happened like a year ago. So what what is happening is we are being set up as a roadkill for the Americans so that uh, Justin Trudeau, clueless Justin, can play the David to the American Goliath now, in 2019. There, you know, I was very confused, to be honest with you, at the earlier part of these negotiations when I heard, of all people, Brian Mulroney coming out and sounding like he was defending Justin Trudeau and joining the bandwagon and calling Trump the bully and saying how great the NAFTA agreement was and how it shouldn't be disturbed at all. Where was that coming from? Or did he not know at the time that Trump was actually on the free trade? No, I don't know. I don't know what is the rationale of uh, Brian Mulroney. I don't know what's the rationale of uh, um, our former prime minister, um, uh, Stephen Harper, because I think, if I recall correctly, there was this push by both, that we should all, Canadians should stand together, that is the government mm. leaders, the former and the current prime minister, stand together on this issue with the negotiation with the United States. Uh, I don't know what, wh where and why that position is taking place. Uh, I, I think, think I it should be. It. It, it, pardon me? I think I might understand it because Brian Mulroney is a progressive. Remember that. Yeah, his, okay. his reign back in the 80s, he only did two good things in my estimation. That was he made the excise tax visible, beca becoming the GST, which I thought was a positive mood, move, and the uh, free trade agreement with the United States. Other than that, he brought in official multiculturalism. He was as progressive in that respect as a Justin Trudeau. So, I mean, I think they're ideological soulmates when it comes down to that. Except for those two things, there's really no much, not much difference between a Brian Mulroney and a, a Justin Trudeau. Yes, I mean, on, on those issues, there are much commonality. But the trade agreement was negotiated by keeping, keeping those things separate. Yeah, uh, they yes. Were, they were not conflated. Right. Yes. So uh, what you are saying, Bob, is, is an interesting insight into where Mulroney is right now. Is he trying to defend his legacy? Is he trying to play the role to, to strengthen the hand of Justin Trudeau and the liberals in Ottawa as they go into 
what will be a very difficult negotiating with uh, the Americans given the focus of the Trump administration? Uh, I don't know. Um, I think it is possibly the latter, to, to, to show that the Canadians are together and they are not divided. But my own instinct tells me that, that that's the wrong approach. We should be, that is, that is the conservative as the opposition, should be hammering daily the liberals on this matter, that they are basically now abandoning Canada's working class people and middle class people, you know. It's unfortunate that Andrew Scheer is not a great leader either. For the Conservatives, he's totally in favor of the supply-side management, and he's probably going to um, die on that battlefield. So um, I don't see that the Conservative Party of Canada is going to be holding Justin Trudeau's feet to the fire in this. Well, uh, you are right because of what happened in the leadership campaign between uh, uh, Andrew Scheer and Maxim Bernier. But here is the Canadian problem that we have to address, uh, that the leaders have to address and the people have to address. Once again, we are in a situation where Quebec is holding a stranglehold on the economy, Canadian economy in general and on the Canadian public. 20% 20 of the Canadian population and a fraction of that population that is the beneficiary of supply management uh, keeping to task the rest of the country. And where will be the leader who will emerge and say, no, we are now in an entirely different world. Uh, but I think that that is going to happen is awakening because the other factor that came into place following G7 was the European attitude, the EU. The EU with Angela Merkel uh, of Germany and, and Macron uh, of France had tried to bully Trump on the question of trade and, and wanted to gang up on Trump uh, at G7. But the Japanese and the Italian were not going coming on board on that matter. They had counted on Justin to play their role of a sort of a band leader. But that didn't work. Uh, what happened was within a week after G7, when Trump came back from his European trip, the president of the European Union, Claude Juncker, came to Washington and basically cried uncle. He agreed to the American position. He agreed to the trade without tariff, without subsidy. He, he's opened it up to negotiation. And most importantly, he agreed to what Trump laid down in uh, the NATO conference at Brussels, is why are the Germans uh, putting 70% of their economy and the Europeans at risk uh, with the negotiated deal with Russia on oil and gas? You know, if they're concerned about European security, how do they put their entire economy into such a vulnerable position. And so now the European Union have turned around with, with Juncker in Washington, and they've agreed that they're going to get their oil and natural gas from the United States. Yes, sir. Uh, thank you, Mr. President. Another question on trade. Uh, you just said that you think that the tariffs are actually going to come down, but it, it does appear that uh, these various countries are moving forward with retaliatory tariffs on the U.S. Did you get any concessions or any agreements with any of these countries not to move forward with those tariffs? And are you willing to not move forward? Well, with if they the retaliate, they're making a mistake. Because, you see, we have a tremendous trade imbalance. So when we try and bring our piece up a little bit so that it's not so bad, and then they go up, right, the difference is 
They do so much more business with us than we do with them that we can't lose that. You understand? We can't lose it. And as an example, with one country, we have 375 billion in trade deficits. We can't lose. You could make the case that they lost years ago. But when you're down 375 billion, you can't lose. And we have to bring them up. So there's very bad spirit when we have a big trade imbalance and we want to bring it up to balance, just balance. And they keep raising it so that you never catch. Uh, that's not a good thing to do. And we have very, very strong measures that take care of that because we do so much. The, the numbers are so astronomically against them in terms of anything as per your question. We win that war a thousand times out of a thousand. Don't forget this. Sargus IV is a capitalist culture. What is it? It's money. What do you do with it? You give it to people, and they give you stuff, or they do stuff. That's weird. There's going to be a lot of weird surprises down there, so everyone's going to have to stay alert. You are listening to Just Right, broadcasting around the world and online. It is thanks to our financial supporters that it's possible for us to continue on our journey in the right direction and to share our programming with the world. Check out patreon.com slash justrightmedia or visit www.justrightmedia.org to offer your financial support. And while you're there, be sure to sample our archive broadcasts featuring an array of timeless discussions of all things just right about freedom and capitalism. And we're talking about one aspect of freedom today, and that's certainly free trade, one of the most important issues. And free trade doesn't just exist between Canada and the United States or the North American entities, but it's, the European situation affects this very much as well, does it not? Because Canada is looking at other trade partners around the world, being Europe, you're talking about Canada seeing itself as more of a European partner often than a North American partner. Is that an issue for us? Yes, I think it's a very important issue. And again, that's below the radar and Canadian people need to talk about it. That means people have to address it, the people in politics and people like you and I and others in the media. With Claude Juncker's visit to Washington and the emerging characteristic of a renegotiated trade deal between the United States and the European Union means that Canada is going to be left out in the cold. Canada had relied, going into the G7, that its relationship with the Europeans is firm, and that's what Justin Trudeau was anchoring his position on the support of Angela Merkel and Macron. But you saw how quickly things changed. It changed, you know, in a flip of a coin, because the European desperately need the American market, the European automobile section desperately need the American consumers. And if Trump was going to carry through with his promise of raising the tariff on the European automobile sector, that would be a huge blow to to the uh, European. So uh, Juncker came running, cried uncle, and has agreed to basically renegotiate EU-US deal. So there goes the whole 
I would say the past, what, 60, 65 years of Canadian thinking, which began during the height of the Cold War, that Canada is more akin to Europe than to the United States. And that began with Pierre Trudeau's push for metrification, for adopting all or most of the European uh, issues like multiculturalism, immigration policy, trade, and leaning towards Europe that we are. And this was, again, also uh, in a way to buttress the French-Canadian or the Quebec politics, you know, that, that, that was there. Recall that in 1968, that's exactly what, 68, 50 years ago, de Gaulle came to Quebec and cried, Viva la Quebec, Viva la Libre, Quebec. And so to, to accommodate or to keep that within control, we leaned towards the European. And that was, in a sense, contrary to the views of Wilfred Laurier, which we talked about a little while ago, when Brian Mulroney played the Laurier card by negotiating free trade with the United States. So I think we are at a position now well into the second decade or the first quarter of the 21st century for the Canadian people to engage in a serious discussion about what is Canada? Is Canada a North American nation? Its destiny tied inextricably with the United States, the world's greatest power, the world's largest economic unit, the world's most important military power. Are we tied to the United States in this relationship as a North American nation along with Mexico, or are we still a European nation appeasing in some ways the sentiments of that element of Quebec population that still imagine that they can be a separate state, you know, a French state, French-speaking, French cultural state? This is a debate that is worth having, and this is a long time overdue. I thought that this debate has been ongoing, ongoing since before the beginning of Canada, because... It's kind of perpetual, isn't it? It is a perpetual, um, sort of a schizophrenic discussion of whether or not we are European or American. And I, I can remember when, the, um, reading about education system here in the province of Ontario, it began as a kickback against the Americans because mm-hmm. when it was established... To keep out those fanatic Americans. It, exactly. <laughs> when the education system in Ontario began, if you go back to the records, record books, you will see the politicians saying, we need to write the curricula, otherwise our children are going to be imbued with the ideas of freedom and individualism, which we are opposed to here in Canada. Because at that time, of course, the curricula was written by the Americans, American books, the American readers. And so this debate has been ongoing forever. And I thought that it was more or less settled with Pierre Trudeau, who basically came out and, in no uncertain terms, made it very clear that we're not American. We always had this cultural identity problem. And it was Pierre Trudeau, a, a, a Marxist, a communist, no question about it, who took Canada down the road to a European style of uh, tribalism, of protectionism, of cronyism, that rejected America because of America. It's like Ryan Rand saying the rejection of the good for being the good. We rejected America for being America. 
They made a model that we didn't follow. They succeeded. We failed. So we feel rejected. Well, I mean, uh, Robert, um, all of that is true, that one of the threads in Canadian politics, Canadian culture, in a sense, Canadian identity, who are we as Canadians, has been a long time, in fact, right from the beginning, from the British North America position, a a tension between Canada uh, as a dominion of the British Empire and the United States as a new republic founded on a revolution, 1776. So you just have to travel down from Toronto on Highway 401 going to the Maritime and you're traveling the road of the loyalists to those who came to Canada, I mean, in this in the late 18th century, were people who rejected America, and and the people built up a country and a state, eventually, that was going to be distinct and different, in so many different ways than what was America. So at each of the critical stages in Canadian history. You might go back to 1867, the foundation of Canada and the modern Canada. That that moment in history was a moment, again, we wanted to be distinct and different from America because America was trapped in the civil war, in the, in, in the most disastrous war. At that time, any country, any people were trapped in, 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 in the world. And so we wanted to be safe, we wanted to be distant, we wanted to secure ourselves, and we tied ourselves with, very naturally, without too much difficulty, that we are part of the British Empire, as is Australia, and so on and so forth. Uh, so you fast forward now, you come to World War I, against this de- again, this debate happened, whether it's over conscription, whether it is what is our interest to go and fight in in, in Europe, uh, sacrifice in Europe. But we were there. We were there right from the guns of August in 1914. Well before the Americans joined well the war. Well before the Americans, thank you, before they went in in 1917. Fast forward again to uh, the 1930s. Oh, once the shots were fired, we were there. We were distinct from America. We were part of the British Empire. We were connected with Europe. And then you fast forward to the point you are coming to, the 1960s, the Pierre Trudeau. Once again, we are trying to keep our difference and our distinction and our space because America is now trapped in the Vietnam War. The ugly American syndrome, the bad guy. They're bombing these poor people way out in the third world country, living in bamboo huts, huts, you know, glorified by that movie in which Marlon Brando played the ugly American, you know, based on the novel, The Ugly American. And so, again, the sentiment was, you know, we, we are not part of that American, you know, imperialistic, hegemonistic, violent. And America was being torn apart internally, but the civil unrest, the 60s, the years of the assassination, of cities burning, Detroit burning. Remember the song by Gordon Lightfoot, the July, the day burning? I, I don't know the whole thread of it, but it was based upon the events that were happening. So yes, all of that is true. We are in some way distant. We are cousins, but cousins are got differences. But what I'm saying that we have to now have this discussion again in a new way because we are now in a new century 
well into a new century. The new world order is gone now, isn't it? The new world order, Trump has blown it away because the new world order was the status quo of what was the world that had come to be post-1945. That is globalism, United Nations, you know, Cold War, European, North American alliance, and so on and so forth. But the Cold War was over 25 years ago. And so the readjustment, the tectonic shift, the paradigm shift that has been taking place, we now have to face up to that. We had put our eggs in the European basket. The Europeans will t- had used Canada for their own purpose. And you saw how quickly Europe flipped. That's what I'm pointing out on the trade negotiation. So when the interest is at stake, we have to say, where is our interest? What is Canada's interest? We are a country of 35 million people going down to the 21st century. Where is our bread and butter issue? Where is our security issue? Who is closest to us? And that is what leads us to, are we a North American nation or are we a European nation? In a a sense, it's an old discussion because it goes back to Wilfred Laurier. So two things can happen on NAFTA. We'll uh, either leave it the way it is as a threesome deal with Canada, with the United States and Mexico, and change it very substantially. We're talking about very big changes. Or we're going to make a deal directly with Canada, directly with Mexico. Both of those things could happen. If a deal isn't made, that would be a very bad thing for Canada, and it would be a very bad thing for Mexico. For the United States, frankly, it would be a good thing. But I'm not looking to do that. I'm not looking to play that game. So we're either going to have NAFTA in a better negotiated form, or we're going to have two deals. When you have government intervention in the market, then you don't have freedom. And when you don't have freedom, then productivity, progress, creativity, everything suffers. It's a historical fact. Government isn't perfect. Look, I admit government isn't perfect. I mean, really, government isn't perfect. And I, I really believe in free enterprise and the free enterprise system. But if you don't have government regulation and big business, you know, the multinationals that just take over, today the country, tomorrow the world, that's, what, that's how they feel. If you don't have government, you've got to have government to protect from the force of big business. Force? What force? How can business operating legitimately in a free market force anybody to do anything? Well, the big ones have a lot of dollar power. Right, right. right. With that kind of power, they Uh, just corner the market. They buy up all the competition, uh form cartels, monopolies. Screw the people, that's right. This man has a monopoly in bathtub gin. He's well organized. He provides the consumers with a product they desire. He has a manufacturing plant, the means of distribution, salesmen and outlets. He sets his price and he gets it. He doesn't have to worry about competition. He controls the market. This is a government monopoly. The U.S. Postal Service. It provides the country with a needed service. The prices aren't enough to cover its costs, but the difference is made up in taxes. The government has simply outlawed all competitors, and the U.S. Postal Service controls the market. These companies are government-sanctioned franchise monopolies. They furnish the utilities in their areas, but their rates, policies, and territory are determined by government commissions. If you don't like it, you can lump it. 
Because of special government franchises, they control their markets. And there are yet other forms of market control. For when government has been given the power to grant legislative favors, private interests will not hesitate to bend that power to their own direction. Looking into the future now and how Canada should position itself in a trading arrangement, historically, we can see how nations would line up with one another because they had common interests, be they political, military, uh, trading, otherwise. I think more and more, as time has gone on and as the European experience seems to have indicated, the idea of creating a big trading block has many negative things about it. Margaret Thatcher brought them out when the European Union was first forming. And one of those problems is that when you have a, a trading block, you're kind of cutting out other people, other countries from that block, say if it was just Europe. And at the same time, each country within that block is buying into the problems of the other countries. So if you get some other countries that aren't carrying their own weight, the more productive countries end up having to carry the weight of those ones that aren't carrying their own weight because of internal policies. Usually the more to the left they go, like Greece, for example. So like group work in high school. Yeah. <laughs> One or two and people so do all the work. It, it fizzes out after a while, and you can't maintain those blocks just based on political alignments. It has to always be economics, and economics changes from, from day to day with new innovations, with new inventions, with new things that happen in technology. And so I'm seeing that shouldn't each nation, rather than forming trading blocks, just act as an independent agent? sort of more as an individual and form its own trading arrangements with every country that's willing to trade with it. Wouldn't that be the most secure position? Well, ironically, what you're saying is the subtext of uh, Trump's position. Yes, what? because they can operate from their own self-interest, each nation. This is what Trump meant. In his first speech to the United Nations last year when he went as president in September, he pointed out that his America first is not against the world or against the United Nations. His America first is that he is responsible for America and he'll do the best for America. And it is the American people that must do the best for their own country. And that he expects every other country would do best for themselves. Exactly. That is the Japanese prime minister does the best for Japan first and the Chinese president, he said in Florida that he has tremendous regard and affection for President Xi of China. But he's not going to go along with his personal regard for President Xi of China and obscure the fact that China has been milking America. You no, know, and he's going to. So th there it is. Back to your argument. In fact, he actually complimented some of the countries that were milking America for getting away with it for so right. long because they were so, acting in their own self-interest. That's exactly. true. He blamed he blamed the United States yeah. for their problems. Well, he did that's not right. blame the other countries for that. He hasn't. He has held the the presidents of the United States and the Congress of the United States for selling the American people short. Now, uh, Maggie Thatcher's position has ironically culminated, but it has not been consummated. It culminated with the referendum on Brexit. Yes. Okay. Because Maggie Thatcher was arguing that the blocks that had been created that you are referring to is the is the European bloc, the European mm -hmm. Economic Community, and then later on the European Union. And then as a block, the decision would be made not by the individual member states for what is their interest, but what would be guided by the bureaucrats at Brussels representing the bloc. So now you open up this argument, Bob, and you see where we are headed in the direction. This is, 
the American position under President Trump and what he has brought on, and this is where I say the paradigm shift is taking place, the page has been tur- is being turned, is from the new world order globalism which George Bush 41 talked about in his inauguration in 1988. Uh, that is, uh, new world order meant very clearly uh, globalism, open border, and the rules and regulations would be laid out by the United Nations and its agencies. So when it comes to the matter of trade, it would be laid out with the World Trade Organization, which is the UN uh, agency, and they will set the rule. And so when you hear people like at the G7 we're talking about, that Trump is ignoring the whole set of rules and regulation. We want to live by rules and regulation. What they are saying is, if you go to parse and analyze that, we're going to live by, and we want to live by the rules and regulation of the new world order, that is globalism, open border, which is going to be managed by the United Nations. And what Trump is saying, we will live by the rules and regulations, but those rules and regulations will be written by us, our parliament, our Congress, that each country, and then, you know, we, we deal and trade, as you were talking about, each country, going back to the original trade theory of Adam Smith, comparative advantage, you know. We of nation states. Of nation states. Yes, not blocks. Not blocks. Yes, you have to do that. And, and, and it seemed to me that that was the same attitude that Trump adopted with Putin yes. when he got together with him and that they both recognize, each of the leaders, Putin and Trump, that they're operating out of the interest, whatever their nation is, from their self-point of view. And I thought both Putin and Trump, from what I heard from their meeting, seemed to have gone very well, except for the fact that now we have this issue of Crimea coming in between them, holding up future negotiations, because the U.S. apparently doesn't no, want not, it. I would say not, it is not even Crimea. It may be for Christia Freeland, but not oh. for not for, for President Trump or, or the Americans. It is this fake Russia collusion story that was oh, floated well, as yeah. a way to explain away the defeat of Hillary Clinton to Trump, you know, Mm -hmm. that Trump could not have defeated Hillary. Somebody colluded with Trump, and it is the Russians who colluded with Trump, stole the election and gave it to to Trump. Has become the huge political problem in the United States, or has become a huge political problem with that segment of American population, and of course 90% and over of the media, that is anti-Trump and never Trumpers. You see? So I think this is where the midterm election now, you know, some 90 days away in November, is going to be one of the most crucial elections in the recent American history. Because if in that election the Republicans uh, lose the House to the Democrats, the Russia collusion story will become the sledgehammer that will be used to impeach the president and to try to drive him out of the office, you see. So this is where it all hangs. This is a domestic issue. Uh, the the relationship with Trump, uh, with, with Putin, sorry. Look, go back to Obama. Obama said to uh, the president of uh, Russian Federation in 2012 when they had their bilateral meeting uh, in an open mic, which he was not aware was an open mic, tell 
Putin that after my next election I will be more flexible. Flexible about what? <laughs> whether it is Crimea, whether it is Ukraine, whether it is... It was the Secretary of State Hillary Clinton who went to Moscow and met her counterpart, uh, Foreign Minister Lavrentia, uh, and, and talked about the reset button, gave him the reset button, the reset relationship, you know. Uh, so this is all utter nonsense. I mean, there is the whole question. We live in a world in which, you know, uh, one has to negotiate, one has to deal with your enemies, whether it is Kim Jong-un, whether it is President Xi of China, whether it is Putin, or whether it is the Ayatollahs in Iran. You know, you, you have to deal with them in the sense that you have to take them into account, have your diplomatic thing. What Trump has done is brought back Theodore Roosevelt. You know, talk Speak softly long, and carry a big stick. Carry a big stick. You know, and he's so, got the big stick, so he doesn't have to worry exactly. about that part and of the it. The big stick is, and so we back to the trade issue. There is two trillion dollar worth of global trade that America is involved in. That is American two trillion dollar market. American economy at twenty trillion dollar. That's the trade that the rest of the world wants without opening up their country to dealing with America. You see, so what has happened under the name of free trade over the last 25, 30 years, we have had mercantilism. Mercantilism is using economics for national interest, national security reasons. That's right, and it's been called things like rampant capitalism in, in some European quarters, right, which it is not. It, it is what you described it as. Yeah. It's more like crony, Paul. And, and, and one final thought on this yeah. exchange, uh, 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 Bob. What, again, our media has been so utterly trite and, and, and Pravda-like is to do, obscure the fact that Trump and his people are people who are traders, who are business people, who are builders, who want market, who wants to engage, instead of, you know, uh, be protectionist and depend upon natural resources, that is, create cartels, which is what was OPEC was, cartel, which is what the Europeans are trying to do with their own economy. So the flip side of the argument is where Trump and his people are, you know, whether it is the uh, Commerce Secretary uh, Wilbur Ross, his, his trade negotiators, people like Lighthizer, uh, Robert Navarro, and Larry Kudlow, these are people who come from business side of, of, of the American economy. They're not bureaucrats, they're not academics, they're business people. And the key of a businessman's psychology is to find a way, what Trump said, the art of the deal, which is a win-win proposition. Well, make it a win-win for yourself by joining us again next week when we will continue our journey in the right direction. And until then, be right, stay right, do right, act right, think right, and be right back here. We'll see you then. Fade into color, color into black and white. Under the bedclothes, everything will be now standing by for this important message. Vajodrasti, tovarishi. It's now time for giving up old way from washing. The makers of Jewish Philly's fresh frozen sardine pot pie now bring it to you whole new product. Turn card, please, Charlie. Good. It's very good. We got it here. New etch me complete home laundry. No more carrying closet down to the river 
for hitting on rocks. Now just carry this top down to the river, you're filling it up with water, and then you're carrying it back, and you do your laundry in comfortable home. And not forgetting, attach me, progress is our most important problem. <laughs>